Our first reading tonight will be Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The next reading is taken from Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 7, continuing in Ephesians verses 22 to 23. Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 7. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure no immoral, impure or greedy person such a man as an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes to those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Continuing with verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as, the, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the head of the church, sorry, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing her through with water, through the word, and to present her to him as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are all members of his body. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the Church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word. Well, good evening. Let me add my welcome uh, to you. Good to see you. My name's Matt Fuller. This is our third brief look uh, over these last few weeks, three weeks about myths, myths about marriage we've been talking about. It's been topical as a series, uh, not as our normal habit, working our way through a book of the Bible or a section of a book. Uh, so we're thinking topically, really, three sermons on Genesis 2.24. Is what really what it's about, helpful to turn back there. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. Really, it's been three topical sermons on that. Now, the danger with topical sermons is, I can say whatever I want. And the danger of the last in a series of topical sermons is, I say everything I want that I didn't say in the last two weeks. And that's what we've got tonight. So, uh, just so you know, it's just, there is that slight danger, but, um, uh, let's pray that it'll be a useful time as we look at this together. Our loving Heavenly Father, the, the cry of every believer is that we were blinded by our sin until your Spirit gave us life, opened up your words so we could hear it as the words of yourself speaking to us, transforming us. Please, please would your Spirit be at work doing just that again this evening, we pray, changing us opening our eyes to see what is true from what is false, helping us make our way through a world which is sometimes unclear and murky. Give us clarity from your word, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the third, then, of this uh, little series, uh, myths about sex. Now, once it's, here's a one sentence, what does the Bible say? The Bible says sex is a wonderful gift that God has given us. It is wonderful for the procreation, It's wonderful for binding marriages together. It's wonderful because it gives us an insight into God's passionate love for us. There's three reasons. It's a wonderful thing. But it's corrupted. When mankind falls, as with every other aspect of our behavior, it's corrupted. And so now sex is used abusively and foolishly. But last thing, when you become a Christian, sex is redeemed. Your past can be washed away, and you now live differently, distinctively, honoring sex. Which, I mean, without being too crass and blunt about it up front, means uh, abstaining if single, actually doing it if you're married. Now, it's bizarre to say that, because broadly there are going to be four groups here tonight, but two large ones. The four groups are this. There are those who are single, and some who are honouring the Lord in their behaviour, and there are those who are not. Two groups. And then there are marrieds, those who are uh, enjoying sex within their marriage, and it's healthy, and those who are not. And in truth, I stand here and think, how do I speak to all those four people without annoying the others? And I despair. So I'm sorry about that, um, but let's have a go. What we're going to do, just very, to try and keep it simple, two myths, two myths, and then one positive statement uh, to finish, because it would be a bit gloomy otherwise. Two myths. Sex is more than no big deal. Sex cannot provide the intimacy you lack. 
and the positive. Uh, sex reveals God's passion for us. Let's take them in. First, sex is more than no big deal. No big deal. So Genesis 2, we're back there. Genesis 2, do turn it up. Uh, Genesis 2 and verse 24, this verse that we've really spent the last three weeks in broadly. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. One flesh. Binding the man and the woman together as a new family. Just before verse 23, the woman is made out of the man. She was flesh of my flesh. She comes from him. And now in marriage, flesh comes back together. A new family is created. They are one. They don't hit the, the, the famous cry of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He may be Father, Son, and Spirit, but he is one. And in a marriage, there's a sense in which the husband and wife, there's a sense in which we echo that relationship in the Trinity. Different persons, of course, but one in purpose, unity, a dramatic sense of togetherness, one flesh. And so here you have, when he's talking about one flesh here, of course it's talking about uh, the physical, the sexual, but sex is God's uh, appointed way of helping marriages be bound together. It's God's appointed way of expressing, I belong to you exclusively. We are one. In a way, I'm not one with anyone else. There's a new being here, a new family here. We are one. There's a sense in which it's a, a commemoration each and every time of your wedding vows. And of course, it's not just a physical thing. It is meant to be a representation of the entirety of a marriage. Which is why even the most secular of uh, publications will say, just physical sex, it's, it's all right. But you only get the best sex when you have a, an emotional connection. Now, I don't know what that means. But certainly biblically that means, of course, this is meant to be within a marriage where there is commitment to one another. It's the God's design for it. It is in the security provided by exclusive marriage that allows for mistakes, that allows for good times, bad times. It doesn't matter so much. You can go wrong, you can go right. It doesn't matter because you're committed. Uh, not long after uh, we were first married, my wife and I, uh, a good number of years ago, um, we were in our early 20s, and we happened to get a car ride with a, an older couple in their uh, mid-50s. And uh, he was a minister and uh, wife. And, and usually I, I was in the front uh, with the wife next to me. Uh, Kerry, my wife was in the back with her husband, odd slightly arrangement. But they got in the car that way because I think they decided they were going to have a conversation with us. They would be slightly deliberate. Um, and it was an odd conversation because uh, in the front of the car, I was told by this 55-year-old minister's wife, what your wife needs to know more than anything else is that she is more important than your labor, than your work. She needs to know that. Make sure she knows that. And as your older sort of senior, uh, okay, very much. What my wife was told, surprisingly, in the back of the car by the husband is, what your husband needs is sex regularly. Because it binds a marriage together. And men don't do well without it. 
and they become very insecure without it. That's a slightly surprising conversation that we both had. You drop these people off, you know, you know. Did you never guess the conversation I had? Well, you, you know. <laughs> uh, you know. Well, you don't know someone very well. They're 30 years older than you. Okay. <laughs> but sex needs marriage for it to function well. The commitment, the security of marriage. But marriage also needs sex to function well. And you don't have to look hard. I was, I was, I've read numerous articles this week in all the sort of secular media of the sexless marriage. Uh, and if that's you guys in your marriage, you get a bottle of wine and an unrushed evening, you've got to talk about that. You've got to talk about that. Of course, there are occasions in every marriage when things aren't functioning well, but you've got to talk about that at some point. There's a sense in which sex is the, 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 the warning on the dashboard. If something's going wrong there, there's something going wrong elsewhere in your marriage. So sex inside marriage, that's God's good design for giving and receiving of one another. And what do you get outside? Sex outside of marriage ultimately is a performance. Ultimately. Outside of the security of a marriage relationship, it's a performance It does not prepare you for self-giving, for discovery of another. It's a performance. And I don't want to be crude, but some of you will know that. In first sexual encounters or or, or the mistakes you've made in the past. And you can have those encounters and think, am I doing this right? Is he enjoying this? Am I enjoying this? I don't really know because I'm just worried. Is this going okay? It's a performance. You're worried about how you're doing. And you know that's why, <laughs> unlikely, but were, were any of us to have, uh, to have sex with one of the beautiful people, with a, a Brad Pitt or an Angelina Jolie, it would be awful. It would be awful. Can you, I'm just, I'm really unpleasant about it, but <laughs> it would be awful because you would be thinking, are they laughing at me? Is this a joke to them? How am I doing? Are they enjoying this? I'm not sure I am. Because it's them and that's weird. It would be awful. It's a performance at that point. It's not an act of giving. It's not an expression of your affection for someone. It isn't within a context of commitment where, you know, everything goes terribly wrong that evening. You just laugh. It doesn't matter. Because you're committed to one another. Sex inside the covenant of marriage, it's self-giving, serving. The best sex is just when you're delighted to be with the person. It doesn't matter if you're male or female on that. You can, you can caricature, of course. But emotionally, when you're just delighted to be with that person. In that sort of context. Now look, three, uh, uh, three problems then, if you do go for this idea. It's no big deal. If, you're, if you think, no big deal, no big deal having sex, no big deal. Three problems. The first would be this, you, you get dis- a destroyed society. Ken Livingstone, a few years ago, running for mayor, uh, made the comment, I have had five children by three different women, and that has absolutely nothing to do with my public career. Really? I don't know how you can say that. 
Of course, he thinks, well, what happens in private is just what happens in private. But this year, each and every year, 150,000 children will see their parents divorce in the UK. And most of the time, it's related to this issue. Now, the costs of family breakdown in the UK, it varies who you ask and which organisation has done the research. But the figures will vary between £30 billion and £44 billion a year that family breakdown causes in the UK. Due to, of course, you're doing legal costs, tax and benefits, housing costs, social care, criminal social justice bills, all involved in that. Let's just take the middle figure. Let's split it down the middle. £37 billion is what the cost of breakdown in the family costs the UK. That's a third of the NHS budget. Roughly. That is £1,200 for each and every taxpayer per year in the country. It's a lot of money, isn't it? Have a nice holiday on £1,200. Do all sorts of things. You cannot say that sex is just between two consenting adults and has no bearing upon anyone else. That's a lie. It has massive implications for our culture and society. As a fact, I've had you know, five children, three different women. I have nothing to do with my... Yeah, it has absolutely loads to do with your public and your political career because it deeply affects our culture. It has a very big impact. To say, you know, sex is just a private thing between two consenting adults has no impact upon anything else. To say that, it's kind of like if you live in an apartment block setting your flat on fire and saying, nothing to do with anyone else, my flat, who cares? I don't care what you think. Well, if you burn down, mine's going to burn down too. And that's what's happening. It has a deep impact upon our culture. You can't deny that. No big deal. One issue, it destroys society. Two, it corrupts relationships. I feel slightly crude, but let's just be honest here. People used to say that what you did was you made love to one another. And now what is it? People bonk and screw and shag. And once you just need to hear the language to think there's been a devaluation there, hasn't there? I mean, just the language tells you that. There's an article in the press last week, uh, a website that's doing phenomenally well, shagatuni.com. And the chap who set it up, Dave Thurlow, age 22, said, the site is what you'd expect. It's people hunting for sex. Lots of people post explicit images of themselves. I'm okay with that. Of course you're okay with that. You're making money from it. What do you think it's doing to them? Do you ever, what do you think that is doing to a generation engaged in that? One of the books I read this week... Um, it's a good book. Uh, Guy Brandon, Just Sex. Is it really just sex? It's a very helpful book. He, uh, he includes a letter from a woman called Kate. Let me just read you an extract of her letter. She says, Before marriage, sex was for me an assumed part of my life, alongside eating and sleeping. I rarely questioned my actions. And when I did, it was merely to allay my fears of, begetting, of becoming pregnant. My husband-to-be was a virgin who wholly accepted me despite my track record. Before we married, it seemed that we'd left those actions in the past. But as soon as we married, it became obvious that we rarely had sex. My lack of interest in, not to mention enjoyment of sex, I put down to tiredness. We put my husband's growing self-consciousness and his insecurities down to his felt inadequacy to meet his work commitments. 
why would it be that my previous private actions, when they were between two consenting adults, follow me into our marriage and cast such a dark shadow over it? Eventually I realized that my previous sexual experiences, separated from the committed emotional and spiritual relationship designed for it, had created a chasm within me. This chasm festered in our marriage, threatened to destroy my and my husband's sense of well-being, and crippled any chance of intimacy between us. It goes on at some length, towards the end. We have made progress. Needless to say, the journey through was not completed in a day. Indeed, it continues on. I am excited by the possibilities that remain, despite the choices I made. I'm gradually allowing God's mercy and grace to redeem my sexual past and to present opportunities that were not previously possible. Just one woman's account, of course. But honesty there, separating a physical act from the emotional, intimate setting, created all sorts of havoc and problems. They can be overcome, but it created all sorts of problems. While we're cheerful... <laughs> um, another aspect of destroying relationships just let me throw them I told you it's, this is what you get tonight um, obviously you can't mention this without mentioning something like pornography two comments on that I don't know if you read recently the, the, the nature lots of research being done on it into its addictive nature it's an addiction like any other but research done recently into how uh, pornography can rewire your brain so the most recent, uh, the most um, detailed piece of research was done with uh, London cabbies. So uh, London cabbies, when they started off their journey, you know, when they drive around on their scooter with the map on the little plastic board, uh, to when they completed the knowledge and passed and qualified four years later, a journey of about four years long, done in the, by the Wellcome Trust. The striking thing was, over those four years, their brains changed. When they mapped their brains... The density of, some of you will understand this, I don't really, but the density of grey matter in the posterior hypocalmus had gone up enormously, which meant that they were very good at maps and mapping mentally, but they could not change direction at the last minute. They became incredibly intransigent. Hmm, London cabbies. Anyway, the... um, (laughs) This was just quite big news. You, You can rewire your brain with the images you look at. There's all sorts of implications. But certainly with pornography, it's a very obvious one because you rewire your brain. If your brain associates excitement with certain images, that's what it'll take. Now, if you associate excitement sexually with your spouse, great. If you associate it with certain pornographic images, disaster. You know, I've had guys confess to me that even when in married guys, that they struggle to get sexually excited with their wives unless they're thinking of pornographic images because it's become so tooled into their heads. Disastrous. No big deal. No big deal. Casual sex. No big deal. Everyone says, what's the shh, puritanical nonsense? No big deal. Oh, it's devastating. It's addictive. And of course, pornography destructive. 56% of divorcees cite internet porn as a factor now. It destroys relationships. It ruins relationship with God. You get into a cycle of guilt. You can lose intimacy. For blokes, it emasculates them because it dramatically affects your self-esteem. 
terrible. And some will say, you've got to do it, haven't you? You've just got to do it. It's a very natural human need. We can't do anything but this. But we never say that with anything else. The Bible says, control your tongue, control your temper, control your jealousy. And we don't say, well, you know, you can't really expect me to do that. Yeah. Yeah, the Bible says control them. Not hard. No, sorry, not easy. No one's saying it's easy to control your tongue, your temper. None of those things are easy. But your lust, control it. In the language of Ephesians 5, not even a hint should be there. Not even a hint of sexual immorality. Entirely inappropriate for those who are God's children. So with these things, sex before marriage and pornography, the best preparation you can possibly have for faithfulness in a marriage is abstinence beforehand. It's the best preparation you can have is abstinence beforehand. So look, no big deal. No, no, look, it, it, it destroys society. It corrupts relationships. Third little thing here, then we're done. It dishonors the Lord. It dishonors the Lord. And I guess that's Ephesians 5, the first half of the reading we had. If you may as well flick back there, Ephesians 5, 1 to 7. Paul puts it this way, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us. Be imitators of God. Not even a hint of impurity. And of course, it's serious when you read this, isn't it? Verse 5 of Ephesians 5. No immoral, impure, greedy person has any inheritance of the kingdom of Christ. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. Look, it matters, says Paul, to live in this way. Well, as Jesus expresses it, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye, gouge it out. Not playing games. Don't say it doesn't matter. Don't say it's too difficult, says Jesus. Just sort it out. Do something about it. Attack your sin. One last, one just little practical thing here. Um, I need to say this. Uh, people who are dating and going out, everyone has their rules, everyone has their favorite rules, and you're dating and going out, keep four feet on the ground, but touch what you haven't got, except everyone has their favorite rules. There are some use, I guess. Uh, the most important thing biblically is honor the Lord. Be imitators of God. Seek to honor Him. One thing that has become, I just, in the last five years, increasingly common, I'm just throwing just a whole lot of stuff out here that makes me unpopular. I just thought I'd dump it all in one sermon, okay? <laughs> okay. All in one sermon, and then those who won't hear, won't hear it. You know, it's fine. You, you. Increasingly popular over the last five years, or common, people dating and just going on holiday, just the two of them. I don't understand that. Because people say, what's the problem with that? We've got separate beds. You know, couple X did it. They were okay. Where in the Bible does it say you shouldn't go on holiday with your girlfriend? You're very good. Where in the Bible does it say you shouldn't blow your head off with a gun? It doesn't. It's just not a good thing to do. Lots of things we can work out. Don't use that as an argument. Why would you... Is that the best way of honoring the Lord, which is what we're asked to do, told to do? Four obvious things. Don't trust yourselves. You go on holiday... It's nice, because generally when we go on holiday, we go to nice places. You have a couple of drinks. You may be under the stars. Don't don't trust yourselves. It's a foolish thing to do. Two, you represent Jesus if you're a Christian. 
And your colleagues say, what are you doing on holiday? Going away with my girlfriend. Oh, yeah. No, 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 we've got separate beds. Oh, really? Oh, really? You represent Jesus. You're not honoring him in doing that. Three, God doesn't ask us to be minimalists in obedience. He never says, just work out that the closest you can possibly get, if that's the line of disobedience, go on, push it, push it. See as close up to disobedience as you can possibly get. Uh, that's the f- he doesn't ask us to be minimalists in obedience. He says, honor me. Why do we want to just keep pushing, pushing, pushing the boundaries? Fourth comment. You can wait. People sometimes say, but, but life is busy and we just don't get the chance for prolonged, exclusive time in one another's company. That's marriage. You want that? Get married. But, you know, it, it we're so useless at delayed gratification in our culture. We just want everything now. That's for marriage, prolonged, unrushed time in one another's company. There's no argument. But, we, you know, how, how will we know that we can go on holiday together? Oh, for goodness sake. Do you argue? Do you get on well together? Well, learn to repent, confess your sins, and you'll be fine. It's not an argument. Just one little example. Last thing, I, last question. I've said this before, but not for not recently. Guys, took two questions. If you are dating, two questions to ask yourself continually in a courtship. If the relationship ends, it doesn't end in marriage. It just comes to a close. If it ends, can I say yes to these two questions? One: Have we both grown as Christians during our time going out together? Yes, great. Which means you've served other people. Great. Two, have you honoured her while you're dating? Physically, or have you done things you regret? Emotionally, or have you made her think that you're in a place that you're not? Which talk of when we marry, etc., etc. And if the answer to those two questions is yes at the end of a relationship, it's a good relationship, even though it hasn't ended up in marriage. Have we grown as Christians together? Yes, good for you. Did you honour her? Yeah, I did. Good for you. So it hasn't ended up in marriage. But you've had a go, you've talked about it, you've thought about it. Brilliant. That's been a successful relationship, I'd say. Good for you. Good to have those in mind. Let's move on. Sex is more than, no big deal. No big deal, it's more than that. Second thing, sex cannot provide the intimacy you lack. Here's the sort of perverse thing of our culture. On the one hand, our culture can say, sex, no big deal. You know, sleep around, it's no big deal, who cares? On the other hand, it could say, you're not sleeping around, you're odd. How do those two go together? It's nonsense. I read this week, uh, uh, 80% of university students claim they're sexually active. I don't think that's true. Not that I've done any research. My guess would be, if you interview a university student, are you sexually active? Yeah. It's going to tend to be the... Um, <laughs> it's going to tend... I think that'll probably skew the results. But anyway, in one sense, it doesn't matter if it's true or not true. If people keep saying that, you do feel a little unusual if you're the 20%. And therefore, the pressure, you must do this. You're not having sex? 
Well, you're odd. Everyone else is. Are they really? Don't know. Not sure. But you're odd, says the world. There are more single people than ever before in the UK. We talked about that in the week one. People are more mobile than ever before. And move around different cities, countries even. Which means that there is a deficit in relational intimacy. We don't have the friends that former generations had. Oh, it's easy to criticize. It was all superficial. But people did stay at least in, in one tiny location. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. The point is simply this. People feel a relational deficit and therefore go for the wrong answer. Well, let me just have skin contact and then I'll feel intimacy with someone. But again, rip that out of marriage and it's just superficial. It doesn't help you. Forgive me for this one. At the end of the summer, I stopped in on a friend of mine, uh, slightly, un- uh, it was unannounced. I was tra- traveling back and, uh, stopped in on a friend and, uh, knocked on his door and after, you know, oh, no, 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 coming. And, uh, eventually he came back downstairs and, oh, oh, great. Just give me one moment. Oh, terrific to see you. Why didn't you call? Well, I thought, yeah, well, can you just give me one moment? Uh, and then about three minutes later, a woman left the house. So, who was that? Oh, she's just my summer shag. I'm sorry? Yeah, 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 it doesn't matter. I was bored. Uh, but you're here now, so terrific. Let's open her house. I'm sorry? Why don't you get her back? Get her back. I don't want to... Don't do that to her. Ah, not important. What is that? That's horrific. What does that do to someone? It's all very well. You know, it's just a casual thing. We're both casual. There's no commitment, but... Very rare to keep that balance. Only someone gets involved emotionally. It's terrible. Seeking intimacy in the wrong place. Miserable way of living. Sex outside marriage is a false intimacy. As that letter said, it can create a chasm within you. By contrast... God has designed his church to be a place of intimacy. You do know, don't you, that Christianity is the first religion or culture to say that singleness is okay. So in, in, so in traditional cultures, uh, sex outside marriage was kind of a taboo, but singleness was definitely taboo. And Christianity comes along and says, Genesis 2, marriage is good. And in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7, Singleness is good, and they are both good ways of living. That's revolutionary. No one ever, there's no culture that said that really before in such a strong way. Why? Because you can grow the kingdom of God, whether you're married or whether you're single, because you can grow the kingdom by evangelism, by telling people about Jesus Christ, by encouraging others in the faith with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You don't need to be married to do that. It's a fairly radical difference here, and the church has got to be it's got to be a place of which is countercultural. Because actually to, to live in a way that the Bible wants us to, to have marriages which are strong, to have uh, singleness which is normal, we need one another in a pressure where the culture is saying it's not. We need one another and the church has got to function as that sort of place. Sex is not God's solution to loneliness. Marriage is 
helps, but it's not God's solution to loneliness. There are plenty of lonely married people. Finding Jesus Christ, finding your identity in him, and then having relationships at church where you can mix with others and mix in families, that is God's design. Some will remember a few years ago, um, Tim Keller, who's minister in New York, uh, came and spoke. I interviewed him at the front. The thing that stuck in my head from doing that uh, was, okay, so you're in a very big church in New York, but the demographic is the same as the congregation here in the evening. What's the most common piece of advice you give to folk in New York in sort of 20s to 40s? What, what's the most this young professionals? What do you say more often than anything else? Do you remember, some will remember. Get out of cyberspace and see people face to face. That's the biggest problem in New York. Relationally. Get out of cyberspace and meet people face to face. There are too many superficial acquaintances, too little investment in friendships, time together. So practically two mistakes that that get made, it seems to me. One, people who are dating drop their friends because they're spending all their time with the one they're courting. And the friends feel gutted. And you're going out with someone, you spend all your time, but what if it, you know, that doesn't move to marriage? That, oh. And you're adrift as well, because you've dumped your friends a little bit. That's absolutely reckless. Don't do that. Don't do that. You see that sometimes. It just is a very foolish thing to do. Second practical little mistake. Every year, come September, people will say in church, in a city centre like this one, I'm a bit lonely. That's acute if you arrive in a big city like London for the first time. But sometimes, actually, you may have been here for a few years, but others have left, and you think, oh, I'm a bit lonely, actually. And every year, something that comes in September time, it gets the end of the month of September, and certainly as a staff team, we'll sit around and we'll talk about, you know, what, what are issues in the church? Lots of people are saying they're lonely. Well, what are they doing about it? You've got to be proactive. You've got to be proactive on that. You have to make, you have to deliberately invest in friendships, relationships. It takes effort. Everything worthwhile takes effort. Sex, more than no big deal. Sex, it cannot provide the intimacy you lack. You can't do that. The church has got to be the place where that happens. And it just, it's not working that way for me now. I'm sorry about that. Genuinely, I really am. It's got to change. You've got to ask yourself, do I need to be a bit more proactive? Ask that question. Last thing before we move on. I don't know how to say this without being misheard, but let me have a go. There are some here who I know are deeply tempted to place their sexuality ahead of their relationship with Jesus Christ. And have that one and Jesus second. So pursue a relationship outside of marriage, be it a same-sex one or a heterosexual one, but outside of marriage. And some will, some will know I'm, you know, you'll know I'm talking about you. And there are some here who are deeply tempted to do that, have been deeply tempted, made mistakes even in the last couple of years. And I look around now and see you saying, I'm going to serve Jesus Christ. And he is now number one. 
and I'll find intimacy in my friendships and I won't stray beyond the bounds of the Bible. And I don't know how to say this without being misheard, but that is so, so encouraging to see you make that decision. It is so encouraging, not just to me, but to others who will know it as well. Thank you. I mean, it makes me weep with joy sometimes because I know the struggles that some battle with. But you've put Christ first. And thank you for that. It encourages many of us enormously. The church must be a place where friendships are intimate. It's got to be that sort of place where we redefine normal. One of the things I really enjoyed reading this week, uh, Martin Hallett, some would know, he uh, heads the True Freedom Trust, which is an organization for, uh, for Christians who uh, battle with same-sex attraction. And uh, one of the things he just put really strikingly, uh, he said, I am not a homosexual, and you are not single, and you are not a married. We are Christians. And that's got to be what makes us who we are. Please, can that be the label above all others? Certainly in a church that we use. And can we not say that um, heterosexual sin is more normal than homosexual sin? What are we doing when we say things such as that? That's nonsense. In a church with Christians, that defines who we are. And we need one another to live distinctively. Very practical ways. Hugs and cuddles with children. Some of us need those things. You can find them in a church family. We need one another. Sex is more than no big deal. Sex is going to provide the intimacy you lack. Uh, last thing. Sex reveals God's passion for us. Ephesians 5. Let me just read it again. Verses 31 and 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. One of the reasons we are made as sexual beings, not the only, but one of the reasons, is to make God more knowable to us. So this language here, or the language and imagery of sexuality are probably the most graphic and daring language that the Bible uses to describe the relationship between God and his people. And he does it both negatively and positively. If you hear about a year ago, uh, we looked at the book, we worked our way through uh, the book of Ezekiel. Do you remember that extraordinary passage in Ezekiel chapter 16? Hosea is the same. But Ezekiel chapter 16, he says, here's how I think of my people, Israel. They're like whores. You can read it. The word appears about 12 times in the chapter. And it's hidden because there's actually a lot more there because there's a verb as well, whores and whoring. My people are whores. They go to the open places. They go to the marketplaces and present themselves naked for anyone to whore them. It's extraordinary language that God uses. Why? Because it's horrible, horrible picture of someone just lying in the street and saying, yeah, come on, come on, come on, come on. Horrible. But God says, you know, that's how I get hurt by my people when they rebel against me. I hate it. 
but then positively, of course, he uses the language positively as well. Here in Ephesians 5, marriage in this life is a parable of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. It's a picture of that. So God has given in part the pleasure of sexual ecstasy as a pointer to how good it will be seeing him face to face. That's a profound mystery, by the way. Paul says it right there. It's a profound mystery. But it's extraordinary that possibly, possibly, I don't know, the most intense physical pleasure you experience on this earth is just given as a hint of how good it will be to be with the living God. That is in part why we're sexual beings. Extraordinary. It's a foretaste of what we have in heaven, of union with God himself. So whatever our status, single, married, divorced, whatever our status may be, actually we need to know that. We need to know that the best that this life can offer in our marriage, just a hint, it's just a hint. That thing, if we're single, we think perhaps we're missing out, it's just a hint. It's just the shadow of the reality, just an echo of what is true. We need to know the intense love of God for us in Jesus Christ. And we've all made mistakes in this area. We've all made mistakes. Let me finish reading this. Uh, It's completely unrelated. How bizarre is that? But I read it this week and I found it enormously comforting. Uh, You just see us, Lewis, talking about struggling and battling with sin. Just a reminder, if If you sit here feeling guilty tonight, well, know that you're forgiven in Jesus Christ if you're a follower of him. But how to do better. But remember this, Lewis puts it this way. It's in just one of his letters. I know all about the despair of overcoming chronic temptations. But I know also that no amount of falling over will really undo us if we keep on picking ourselves up each time and trusting Christ. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach our home in heaven. But the bathrooms are all ready. The towels are put out. The clean clothes are in the airing cupboard. The only fatal thing is to give up. It's when we notice the dirt that God is most present to us. When we notice how filthy we are, that is the sign that he's with us to change us. Isn't that a wonderful picture in one sense? Oh, we'll all be muddy and tatty children by the time we get to heaven. But we'll be washed clean then. And we arrive at the one who just, the, the relationships of this world are just pointing towards. It's a profound mystery. But the intimacy of husband and wife, the two becoming one flesh, it's Christ and the church, really. It's just a picture of what we have to look forward to when we're with him. Let me lead us in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you that sex is a good gift that you've instilled into creation. We recognize fully that we abuse it. We made mistakes with it. We use it unwisely. We sin. And therefore your good gift gets distorted. Thank you that in coming to know Jesus Christ there's forgiveness for all our mistakes. 
Thank you that we can redeem marriage for its, sorry, redeem sex for its good purpose within marriage. Give us the grace, the strength to, to honor you with our singleness or indeed with our marriages, we pray. And thank you for the knowledge that that gift has other uses to bind marriages for procreation, but it is in part also, of course, to reveal the intensity of your love for your people. So we look forward to the reality of which this shadow points. And we praise you that we can be there because of the work of Jesus Christ. Amen.